This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Hi, I am Ashley Hales, host of the Finding Holy podcast and author of the book, Finding Holy in the Suburbs. We're here to connect the dots between the things that matter and your everyday holy life. The first season, we're talking all about place. How does where we live affect our loves and desires? What are the challenges of our places and how do we love God and our neighbors well? My guest today lives in rural Appalachia, probably not a spot most of my listeners live in. So the temptation could be to skip this episode because you don't live in a rural spot. Maybe you live in the city or suburbs or a small town. I've even heard how readers thought my own book, Finding Holy in the Suburbs, wasn't for them because they didn't live in suburbia. But here's the thing. No matter where we live, we have to figure out how to live in that place well. And you'll find so many crossovers between my discussion with Hannah in rural Appalachia and wherever you may find yourself. So my guest today for episode seven is Hannah Anderson. We talk about living as an outsider in a rural community, the wisdom gained through discernment, her calling to her place and to her writing, and her new book, All That's Good, Recovering the Lost Art of Discernment. Hannah lives with her husband and three children in the Blue Ridge Mountains. She's the author of three books, Made for More, Humble Roots, and All That's Good. In addition to writing and speaking, she also hosts the Persuasion Podcast with Aaron Straza for Christ and Pop Culture. So stick around. I promise you'll find some great gold nuggets to encourage you to stay rooted in your place, whether you're in the country, city, or the suburbs. And at the end, I will give you one small step to help take all the things that matter into your ordinary holy life. Here's my conversation with Hannah. This is Ashley Hales, and today I'm really excited to welcome Hannah Anderson, who is an author and speaker and podcaster herself, to the Finding Holy podcast. Welcome. It's so great to be with you, Ashley. Thank you. I have admired Hannah's work from afar and close up, so it is super fun to get to chat with you about how we connect the dots today between the things that matter in your everyday holy life. And I am just really excited to dig into the idea of place and space with Hannah um, because she lives in a really interesting place. Tell us about where you live, Hannah. I do. So I live in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Southwest Virginia. And th- we live in Roanoke County, um, about probably about an hour from where my husband grew up. Now he is um, a native Virginian, which mm-hmm. I didn't realize. Um, I grew up in Pennsylvania. I did not realize that being native Virginia is a thing. Like, yeah, I don't know. I'm all all the way on the other coast. Yeah. So when we met um, in our early 20s, like one of the first things he said to me was, I'm from Virginia. Like, as to impress me, right? Like, oh, oh. Yeah, I'm great. I'm from Pennsylvania. So tell, yeah. So tell us what is the, what is the cachet about being from Virginia? Well, I think it's, um, 
it goes back to before the United States was even the United States. Um, you know, one of the first settlements, uh, European settlements right. um, in the New World was Jamestown. And Virginia was one of the first commonwealths. And the legislature in Virginia um, takes pride in being the oldest legislature in the country, predating the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, so for um, the United States, we don't have like history right. as a political history that goes back hundreds of years. Um, so I think for Virginia's, they, they just feel like they were here before the United States was here. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I've noticed that they almost have a sense of themselves as Virginians first yes, and then Americans. And this really hit home to me. Um, I was teaching Sunday school in our little church. My Mm -hmm. husband is a pastor here. That's what brought us back here. Um, and I was teaching, Oh, second and third graders, um, a story about Jesus going up to Jerusalem when he was a boy. And, you know, I'm trying to be really relevant to them and trying to get them to associate it with their own lives. And I said, you know, this is like if we were to go up to our capital city, what's our capital city? And in my mind, I'm thinking, well, D.C., right? Right. D.C. is the Mm -hmm. capital city of the country. To one of them, they all rang out Richmond. Right. Yeah. So everything is centered yeah, through it, kind of a very narrow political uh, and cultural history. It is. It's very much you're from Virginia and even here in the Southwest, you know, you're from mountains and people identify what county they're from and where mm. their people are mm. from. Um, so, so how is that for you as an outsider coming into that space? Well, I think I knew I was going to be an outsider and, mm-hmm. and that was actually helpful information because sometimes if you move into a community like this and you don't understand the dynamics, you Mm -hmm. can presume a closeness or want a closeness that's just not going to happen. Mm -hmm. So I came in knowing I was an outsider, knowing I always would be an outsider and made peace with that um, and just kind of came to terms with the fact that maybe my children could claim Hmm. being here if they stayed here long enough. But uh, for me, I would always be an outsider. Hmm. And what has kind of grounded you in that, you know, kind of exilic (laughs) in your everyday life? Well, one of the things that's fascinating is even though I'm um, an outsider from a geographic standpoint, um, a lot of the culture is very similar Hmm. of the broader Appalachian culture. So Hmm. I grew up probably 300, 400 miles north, but it was the same uh, mountain chain and the same kind of ancestry, Scott Iris, German. Mm -hmm. My grandmother was a mountain woman. She was raised in the mountains, uh, one of like 10 children. She was the first to go to high school and she walked there two miles. You know, these were the stories I grew up with. Yeah. So, so you have kind of a similar story base. I do. I do. I have a set of common values and common threads, even though I am not from here. Mm, yeah. So, yeah. So it allows you kind of the space to be able to connect with the people there. It does. Yes. Um, okay. As well yeah. as respecting the boundaries. Like right. there is this a nuance between I'm connecting with you around shared things, but I'm also not forcing myself on you, mm. believing that there's greater intimacy than there is. Mm. 
That's fascinating. Can you unpack that a little bit? What's that look like on a, you know, a practical person? Well, if someone's talking about a memory they have, um, like their grandmother or their cousin doing such and such, I can bond around the shared like cultural artifact. Like if it's a song or mm-hmm. they remember a Johnny Cash song or they remember a certain recipe that their grandmother had that maybe was more regional, you know, like, right. okay, this is something that we all kind of share. I can bond around that shared artifact because it's part of the larger culture. Mm-hmm. But when they start talking about their cousins and their aunts and their stories, I listen more than, and I ask questions mm-hmm. because I realize that those are not spaces that I can really speak into. I can just listen and learn from. Hmm. Have you made mistakes along the way, or is that something that comes naturally to you? Kind of the, that uh, mistakes that. come naturally. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was um, just like, "Wow, this sounds so wise." I need to yeah, learn these yeah. things, Anna. Um, I think what mistakes I have made is sometimes I do underestimate um, this the significance of having lived in two worlds. Hmm. So a lot of my work, um, you know, we're rooted here, our places here, our churches here, our, our kids are growing up here, but my work happens at this more universal level. Like I write and I right. speak and I travel. And I think sometimes I underestimate how hmm. unsettling that can be for people here in our community. Hmm. Um, They don't quite have a frame for me leaving my family (laughs) and jet setting, you know, like what they consider jet setting. Right. Um, And they're supportive, but I don't think it necessarily makes sense to them. Right. And so there are times when I've just had to um, learn to decenter, you know, like it's not something I force, you know, in conversation. It's right. something I do, but I also have to be very aware that I'm leading a life that's slightly foreign yes. to them. So how do you, and yeah, I, I remember reading something you wrote on Twitter about that and the ways in which, you know, in some ways you have to be just an exceptional listener, um, you know, to kind of deal with some, you know, potentially patronizing conversation, you know, about like your sweet little womanhood. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Meanwhile, you know, you're reading theology books, you're writing, you're speaking, um, you know, you're engaging in popular culture. How have you found, what have been kind of practical ways that you've found to live in, you know, a foot in each place? Mm -hmm. Well, one thing that has served me well is remembering that what I'm interested in, what I'm doing doesn't have to be the drive of my service to others here. Mm, um, I love that. So while I love the broader conversations, I love theology, I love, like you said, pop culture and analyzing things and figuring out, you know, the sociological, per- you know, all these things right. that just, that doesn't serve people here. Mm. Um, and so I have to decenter my mm-hmm. natural tendencies to say this is what I'd love to talk about with you, right? Because this makes me tick and makes me happy, and stop long enough to say, well, what makes you happy? Oh, what makes you tick? Yeah. I'm just, um, you know, going out over here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that yeah. 
And just, and so how do you make that a discipline? Um, well, when I'm on like social media, Facebook, for sure, the folks in my community probably are not on Twitter. They're not on Instagram, but they'll be on Facebook. And so my right. Facebook, my personal Facebook, I, before I post things there, I think when I run into so-and-so later this week, after having posted this, will this help or harm our relationship? Hmm. And that doesn't mean that I avoid, you know, difficult conversations or, but I have to force myself to think of the people I live with as Mm -hmm. part of my audience. Yes. And recognize that I can say things in a helpful way, even if it's something they don't necessarily want to hear or is not interesting to them, I can say it in a way that serves them mm-hmm. or is a disservice to them. Mm. Um, one thing I did recently with social media, and I have to do this regularly, in order to uh, fix my algorithms, <laughs> I have to go through intentionally liking and commenting on the posts of the people that I live with in this community. Right. So that they show up. So they show up. Yeah. So it doesn't, so -hmm. you don't have a false sense of your community. I love that. Right. So what, what happened naturally is I jump online and I'm just gravitating towards the people that are talking about the same things I'm Mm -hmm. talking about who like Mm -hmm. the same things I like. And if I do that enough, I'll get on my Facebook account and it will only be people who live yeah. hundreds of miles away from me. Right, that believe the same things and right. say the same things and have the same values. And I wonder if you could talk about that in terms of your newest book, All That's Good, that's come out. Mm-hmm. It's all about a book about discernment. I've started it and it's so good. And I would love to hear maybe like how you found this idea of discernment as helpful to living in your place, whether that's kind of in online places or, you know, wider ministry. Um, It's an odd thing in some ways to like, you know, jet into someplace and give a retreat or give a lecture um, and then leave, you know, um, versus being very present in your own community. So the book did, it originated out of this kind of disorientation I was having engaging online Mm. um, over the last few years. And it was this sense of, I would be online and I have friends and we've been talking about things and I would just have this moment of how can we be processing this same piece of information in such profoundly different ways. Mm -hmm. Um, Like what grid are you using? What grid am I using? What grid should we be using Mm -hmm. to understand the world? And as I watched over the last few years with the increase of information that's just coming at us and often disembodied information, you know, it is just, it's almost like we're free floating, Mm -hmm. um, you know, in zero gravity Mm -hmm. and, (laughs) <laughs> you can't get a sense of which way is up. Mm. You can't orient yourself. Mm-hmm. And I realized that the one thing that united all of us is that we had very little sense of how to make choices about what was good. Despite the fact that we all had access to this information, I, I could see across the board, we were making like gut instinct choices or mm. we were responding out of um, our group or groupthink and yeah. what the people around us were liking and thinking. And so I really realized we had to have a set of principles that were larger than all of us. Yeah. So there had to be a set of timeless principles that 
could be used by people in my community, could be used by Mm -hmm. my friends 500 miles away, that could be used across the board for us to go through this process of sorting what's good, what's uh, true, what's beautiful, what's lovely, what's um, honorable, what's just, and Mm -hmm. finding some of those kind of core baseline measurements to know how to process all the information that's coming at us. Yeah, that's great. Tell us what was um, the most surprising of those kind of attributes of discernment. Oh, wow. For you personally. Um, I think I found truth surprising because a lot of the ways we've heard it, if you're going to seek the truth, right? Right. We're going to pursue what's true. Mm -hmm. Um, I've heard it used as a dividing um, like I'm true and you're not like we're on the side of right. truth and other yeah, people we're aren't. on the yeah. side of people aren't. But if you actually look at the purpose of truth, it is to create shared reality. Mm. It's so that people can live in community with each other because mm. they have the same set of confessions and beliefs mm-hmm. and core things that they have bound themselves to. Um, and so I was pleasantly surprised to find that truth, even though it's often handled as this negative disposition of separating the sheep from the goats, you know, sort of thing, Mm -hmm. that the goal of pursuing truth is not to say I'm right and you're wrong, but we all have to live in a shared reality or we Mm. don't have community. Mm. I think you can see that a lot online where we're all kind of crafting our own separate truths, you know, yes. we have these filter bubbles where we can stay within the set of facts that we want, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and mm-hmm. I don't have to be presented with any other facts or information that would in any way destroy the reality I have created for myself. Yes. But what happens is that becomes a very lonely reality. Mm. At best, you share it with everyone else who shares those same sets of beliefs and facts. Mm. Um, at worst, you become the only one in that reality. Right. And so we're all living in these kind of separately created universes because we don't have shared truth. That's, um, yeah. So that was a fascinating, um, I, I don't think I expected truth to be communal. Communal. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. I think that's huge. And that's what, what ways have you found that has helped you practice good rhythms of community in your actual everyday space? Um, I think it's made me more convinced of the necessity of truth in Mm -hmm. my conversation with people in my real life. Mm -hmm. At the same time, it has checked my reason for why I would be pursuing truth. So I have a very direct personality and very <laughs> in your face and we're going to get this right and we're going to analyze this and deal with this. Right. And that is not the cultural rhythm of the community I live in. <laughs> gotcha. We are, as a community, we tend to be slightly more passive, mm-hmm. passive aggressive. Um, I think that comes from being a somewhat disempowered community. We're a working class community. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of folks are just trying to make it through life. And Mm -hmm. so the least trouble that you stir Mm -hmm. up, Mm -hmm. the better off. And so even if you need to find out truth about a certain situation, 
there is that to yourself. Probably. Yeah. And there's a resistance to making a fuss, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I would say, going back to your question about making mistakes, that was probably one of the mistakes that I made from a personal standpoint uh, when we first moved here was I was a little too brash in my, well, we need to find out what actually happened. We need right. to know the truth. You know, and number one, from just like a pragmatic standpoint, nobody else cared. They didn't, <laughs> they, they wanted people to be happy and quiet and just don't make waves. Um, yeah, which was fine in the face of one of the things that you were going for. <laughs> right. But I also realized that a lot of times my pursuit of truth was not um, done with an eye toward building community. Mm. It was yeah. with this kind of cold eye toward establishing justice and truth, yes. you know, as if it existed in isolation to all the people mm. in the community I was in. Mm. And I think one of the things that has changed in my understanding of truth being communal is that the temptation to be quiet is always here in this community. Mm -hmm. The temptation to not speak up, not ruffle feathers. Once you realize the rhythms and you realize what works and what doesn't work socially, you can be tempted to say, oh, well, let's just move on and not worry about it. Right. But if you fall to that side of the road, then you do risk the well-being of the community because you're not seeking shared reality. On the other hand, if you rush to this pursuit of truth as an isolated virtue apart from the people you're actually living life with, Mm -hmm. you could potentially harm them and forget that the goal is communion and unity. Yeah, that's so great. I think that's it's such a beautiful thing, right? To think about like, you know, what are these virtues that are grounding us in our places and how do we at least have a framework for understanding ways that we can, you know, dive off on one side and dive off on the other. Um, And I think that's a beautiful way to think about it in terms of communally building um, our places and, you know, into the wider story of God. Um, Do you have any questions or like a framework that you ask yourself or, you know, practical disciplines in your body and your place that allows you to kind of check, you know, am I, you know, bulldozing people for the pursuit of truth that is abstract or am I, you know, just simply acquiescing to kind of this passive place and culture that I live in? Yeah, I do um, check more frequently now how my words or my pursuit of truth would affect the relationship. Mm-hmm. So especially on social media, as my my neighbors are on Facebook, like they have, we are all there together mm-hmm. now. Like maybe we moved here about seven years ago. I don't even know if they were all on seven years ago. Right. Um, but we all are now, but it's kind of a novelty still for them mm-hmm. in some ways. Mm-hmm. And so the uh, novelty includes a lot of memes and political clickbait <laughs> and, you know, there's fun stuff, but I have noticed in the last two years that I have had to check myself over and over again, not responding Mm-hmm. things that I would get riled up about. And I would say, well, that's not true. Right. You know? And so I'd be like ready to type a response to a neighbor or like the right. a friend in the community and correct them. And I would have to check myself and say, okay, what is the point of correcting them? Mm-hmm. 
does it build the community? Maybe sometimes, maybe it would, maybe it would. And Mm -hmm. if I have, if I do want to jump in and say something, I say something like, well, I can see why you think that here's kind of what I think, but Mm -hmm. not in a way that's finger wagging or I'm correcting you and telling you why you don't have truth and I have truth. Yes. Um, So I do check my responses a lot more frequently than I might have in the past. And I try to always imagine that what would I say if this person were sitting with me in my kitchen? Mm. What would I say if we were at the ball fields and this Mm -hmm. came up? Mm-hmm. And and I think um, that kind of proximity is lost when we're online, especially. Yes. Um, and knowing that I will see this person sometime later this week in yeah. real life in yeah. this place checks so much of my tendency to want to rush mm-hmm. to this kind of judgmental mm-hmm. finger wagging. Um, another thing that I think has it's forced me to be more creative in my mm-hmm. responses. I think the finger wagging is the lazy man's way out. Yep. yep. <laughs> you know, it really is. Right. And one of the things that I've found can be helpful in pursuing truth in real life with people that you love is humor mm-hmm. and turning a joke yep. and finding the way to disarm everyone hmm. so that Yes, you need to have this conversation. Yes, you absolutely have to talk about these important things that are happening. But you have to do it in a way where you walk out on the other side, still in relationship, still in community, still mm, friends. Yeah, that's great. And that's also helpful to you know any of our relationships, parenting, friendships. Um, yeah, that's great. I'm going to try to take some notes and we'll get those in the show notes. Um, As we kind of conclude, I would just love, so I ask everybody on the Finding Holy podcast what their laundry routine is. And the reason I ask your laundry routine is because I think for me anyway, I would love to just talk ideas and, and think abstractly and sit in my little ivory tower and have at it. Um, But it's been a challenge for me to learn, you know, what does it look like to embody my faith? What does it look like to practice the disciplines of faith? And to know that, you know, if the kingdom of God matters, then it has to have an effect on everything, whether that's making dinner, it's, you know, how we interact online, like Hannah's been talking about, um, but also how we do our laundry. So I would love to hear what's your laundry routine? Do you have a routine? And yeah, I'd love to just tell us about laundry. So I don't have an established routine, which means that um, on my bad days, when I am not (laughs) very spiritual, this is the way I do laundry. Yeah. I wait for someone else to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Here's all the passive bits, right? Coming out in your laundry. (laughs) Look, I still have clean clothes. Right. Let's see what happens. Yeah. No, I do try to watch it. I mean, like that's the, that's like the worst of me coming out where I do not, laundry is not important to me. Yes. So it is important. And when I say it's not important to me, that's not saying it's not important. That's that I have yet to learn to fully value it. Laundry. Yeah. should be valued. However, on the days where I am recognizing the value I do it out of acts of service and love to the people in my mm-hmm. home. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, I love you when I do your laundry. Yeah. Um, because it is, 
for me, it's really challenging. It's not the sorting. It's not the throwing it in the washing machine. It's the remembering. Yeah. It's the remembering to move it from the washing machine. Oh, yeah. Dryer. I know. It's the remembering, oh, I need to put another load in. Like, yeah. I know that sounds silly, but for me, it is this monumentous task. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah. So do do you think that is like, you know, I'm just struck by, you know, it's the remembering, you know, and so is it that, you know, both something, it's the combination, right, of both something that is so mundane, but also like these are the acts of love to the people that we both, you know, your family who is the most dear and, you know, gets under our skin, right, the most. um, And this idea of putting back together, right, remembering. um, Yes. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. The members, it's bringing yes. them. Yes. And and I do feel that things like, you know, <laughs> having the thought in my mind, my daughter's going to need her gym clothes yeah. when she comes home and she's going to need them for tomorrow and she's not going to remember to do it. Mm-hmm. And it's going to panic her when she realizes late at night that she didn't do it. If mm-hmm. I do this this morning and I in intentionally remember to do this for her Mm -hmm. it will be an act of grace and union for us yes um and i know that sounds highly existential but that is the only way i can get laundry done no and see yeah Tribute this massive ethical and yes i do too i'm all about it and (laughs) and you know because otherwise it just it loses if like if it doesn't have a meaning and it's simply just this thing you have to do, it feels horrible and just full of drudgery. But I think, but I think you know, even to say, okay, look at my what is my heart saying when I do the laundry? What is my heart saying? You know, when it is far from and disconnected from my people and my place and my God. Um, I think like we can get a window into who we are mm-hmm. and how to love people well, even by our laundry. I think that's. I think that's true. And it really speaks back too to what you were saying about truth being to build up the community. Um, you know, doing your daughter's laundry, right, mm-hmm. is a way to build up the, the family community. It is. And I also have learned to value people to whom laundry comes easily. Yeah. So like my husband, he he just like, yeah, we do laundry because I love clean clothes. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, and it's you as are simple as that. Yeah. You are a wonder. And, and I think I do, I've learned to respect that at yes. levels that maybe sound silly to people to whom it comes easily, but when it doesn't come easily to you, um, it is so valuable. It is. It is. Oh, well, thank you, Hannah. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for sharing your wisdom. Thank you for teaching us a little bit about discernment in your place. It's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Ashley. You're welcome. was totally taking notes during my conversation with Hannah. And if you didn't get a chance to, if you were doing the laundry, don't worry, everything is at aahales.com slash podcast. Be sure to connect with Hannah at her website at sometimesalight.com and on Twitter at sometimesalight. In our minutes remaining, I just want to repeat a few questions that Hannah asked us before we get to that one small step. Her three questions help us grow in the area of discernment. Here they are again, so they can sink a little bit deeper. Number one, how would what I share online actually affect my real life relationships? Two, what is the point of correction in this moment? Does it help build up the community? Three, 
what would I say to this person if this person was actually in my kitchen? Remember, proximity checks our tendencies to use truth as a weapon. And so for your one small step for this week, I'd encourage you to lighten up. Remember, humor disarms. And I think our tendency when we use truth as a weapon is to need to be right and it's to see individually rather than to see how truth forms us into a community. Using humor might be one small way that you begin to see yourself rightly and to begin to see the full humanity of someone else, even if they're on the other side of the screen. So whether that humor comes in the form of a self-deprecating joke or just getting out of your own head and having a crazy family dance party, remember to lighten up. It might be your one small step that you use to help build community right where you are. And in the spirit of building community, I want to give you a gift. I would love to send you your very own Finding Holy journal. All you need to do is share an episode. I'd love it if you subscribed and reviewed on iTunes, but if you share an episode, send me a screenshot. Send it to findingholypodcast at gmail.com. That's findingholypodcast at gmail.com. And I'll make sure that you get your very own Finding Holy journal. Thank you guys so much for listening. It's been such a pleasure to open up these conversations about place with you during this first season. Join me next week. Remember, big things matter, but so does the laundry. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.